reaching net zero emissions by 2050 seems out of reach in the absence of a major acceleration of clean energy technology innovations. India, as you know, is keenly looking at accelerating its entire innovation ecosystem and clean energy forms a major component in it. The startup ecosystem is challenging the status quo. It's audacious, ambitious, you know, it's trying to reimagine and transform the way we produce and consume and uh, not just energy, but anything. I just think we need, um, we probably need tens of companies, if not hundreds of the size of BP and Shell just working on decarbonization. I believe that in a space like this, it's important for a company to keep disrupting not just the market, but also itself. I'm an optimist and I think uh, people might be thinking in a linear fashion, but a lot of these things happen non-linearly. So. The systems change in some of the sectors, such as mobility, is very palpable. Hi, this is Innovation Frontlines, a podcast by the International Energy Agency on the innovations and innovators that could help take us to a net zero emissions future. I'm Siddharth Singh consultant with the IEA based in India, working on a range of issues that impact energy transitions. And I'm Simon Bennett, a technology analyst with the IEA in Paris, leading work on energy innovation policy globally. In today's episode, we have with us Vijut Mohan, the co-founder and CEO of Takachar, a new company that's out there to address one of India's gravest environmental crises, air pollution. So welcome to the show, Vidyut. Hi, Siddharth and Simon. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me. Great to be here. Great to have you also, uh, Vidyut. And before we now hear the story in your own words, let's have a quick, broad look at the problem uh, that Takachar is seeking to address. So in India, well over a million people are estimated to die every year, year after year, due to air pollution. This makes air pollution one of, if not the most acute environmental problems of India. While studies estimate a wide range of sources that contribute to air pollution, in northern India in particular, air pollution from agricultural residue burning can contribute anywhere up to half the pollutants in the air at specific times of the year, even in regions far away from the burning farms. Of course, air pollution from transport and industry still constitute a majority of the pollutants through the year, but that's a story for another time. Coming back to the issue at hand, this agricultural residue comprises of that part of the crop that remains in the ground after the harvest. In the northern plains in India, the so-called rice wheat cropping system, or RWCS, is largely in play, wherein rice and wheat is farmed alternatively once every year. Due to a host of reasons, farmers have very short windows of time between the two crop cycles to remove this residue and prepare the farm for the next cropping cycle. Now, given the lack of appropriate machinery and incentives, farmers often resort to burning this agricultural residue, resulting in plumes of air pollution rising and then traversing across hundreds of kilometers across India's northern plains. Now, of course, this podcast is about clean energy innovation with an eye to address the climate change challenge. Why then are we talking about air pollution and agricultural residue? There are at least two reasons for this. First, while air pollution and climate change are distinct problems, there are several overlaps in their sources and sometimes they can have interlinkages. So in this particular instance, there is evidence that air pollutants lead to the blackening of glaciers in the Himalayas, which in turn accelerate their melting. Also, certain air pollutants in the atmosphere absorb energy from the sun, contributing to its warming. And secondly, this agricultural residue is simply biomass. Biomass under certain conditions can be carbon neutral, which means that it only releases as much carbon when it's burnt as much as was absorbed in the process of its growth. The problem arises when biomass is burnt in an uncontrolled manner like agricultural stubble is, which releases air pollution that can contribute to climate change. Therefore, if there was some way to extract this agricultural stubble, process it, and then use it as a modern fuel, there would be an opportunity to address both the air pollution problem and the climate change challenge. 
Takachar seeks to offer solutions at the intersection of these spaces. That's right, Siddharth. So what we're going to do now is just move quickly from that broad environmental framing and setting up of what the problem is and present the technology solution that Takachar has come up with. And Vidyut, don't worry, you'll have the chance to correct what I get wrong uh, at, at the end of this little introduction. And the way that I've been reading about the, the solution uh, shows me an approach that neatly solves a number of challenges all at the same time. And that's what I really like about it. As Siddharth said, pollution is caused in some cases by stubble burning, and stubble burning occurs because a variety of different types of plant matter need to be cleared from the land a couple of times a year. There are different ways to solve that problem. And one of the ways in the energy sector would be to collect the stubble and burn it in something like an incinerator. But for smallholder farming communities, that's not necessarily an appropriate approach because they don't have the capital available for that service and the plant could actually end up idle for much of the year. In addition, incinerating biomass doesn't prevent all of the pollutants from being emitted. So any solution to stop that pollution needs to have some minimal added expense for farmers. It needs to be not too technically complex and it needs to be able to use a very heterogeneous wet biomass source. And then as you know, the guys behind Takacha have looked at the, the technologies available, there is, I think, this is three other types of thermochemical treatment that you can have for biomass. If you do it at high temperature, you can gasify the biomass and produce a very high quality gaseous fuel. But that again, that's technically complex and it's hard to downsize. At very low temperatures, you can use something called torrefaction, which is how our coffee beans get roasted. That's technically simple. You don't need a PhD to run a coffee roastery, but the partially oxidized product is actually quite hard to sell as a fuel, and it's not necessarily in, in high demand. But if you move to medium temperatures and you're closer to something that's called pyrolysis, you can develop a, a burner that has relatively cheap parts. The pyrolysis unit can be adjusted to limit the oxygen intake and produce a char, like a charcoal, that's actually been found to be very effective as a fertilizer. And if the farmers use that what's so-called biochar on their land, then they can actually increase yields of their crops. So the yields are bigger you know, compared to spending the same amount on, for example, a commercial fertilizer. So with that type of technology, Takachar have tackled the pollution problem. They've tackled the capital investment problem because the unit is sized for an individual farming community. And they've tackled the ongoing costs to, to the farmer by providing some revenue via higher crop yields. But Takachar have not stopped there because they've created a unit that is actually mobile and can be moved around a field to collect the stubble as it goes. And they've also designed the unit to get as much of its heat needs as possible by capturing and burning the volatile material that causes some of the pollution in the first place. And so they get down to really low levels of sulfur oxides, nitrogen oxides, and PM2.5. And being able by just changing the oxygen intake and the residence time of the biomass in the chamber, they've been able to cope with wood chips, almond husks, rice husks, or even coconut shells. So that in broad terms, I think, is the, is the technology innovation that we're talking about. And where do they stand today? Well, the fertilizer effectiveness is proven because they've been using this uh, on farms in Kenya for a number of years. Uh, another company that was founded by one of Takachar's co-founders now has 5,500 customers in Kenya. And They've been able to make a manufacturing plant for their units uh, that can process around 1,000 tons per day. They're mobile, they're modular, and they're being operated in pilot plants in Delhi and I think in Tamil Nadu as well. But there's one key final sort of interesting scientific story to this, which is that apart from the technology development, biochar has recently gained huge popularity as part of a suite of technologies that are seen to re reliably remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Because when the carbon dioxide is absorbed as the crop is growing, and then it's integrated into the biochar and put into the soil, it actually effectively removes the CO2 from the air, and it does not get released from the soil turning back into carbon dioxide. And this is, compared to other systems, a relatively cheap method. They, they reckon that it costs around $70 per tonne, for each ton of CO2 that is then sequestered into the, into the land. And that cost is already covered by the value that the farmers get from the fertilizer. 
So as a result, we have a, a system that's gained a lot of interest. Pakacha have won a million pounds recently uh, as part as a winner of Prince William's Earthshot Prize. Congratulations, Vidyut. And it's now one of 15 milestone awardees in Elon Musk's CO2 removal X Prize. So even though that's not their primary business case, I guess the money that's coming from this carbon dioxide removal uh, interest can't hurt the business at all. So let's bring Vidyut into the conversation. Let him tell us what we got wrong and let him tell us a little bit about the, the current operations and, and what's keeping Takachar busy these days. Thanks so much, Simon, for that detailed introduction. I think uh, we've covered a lot of it, uh, but maybe me, I can add a few points there. So, so we, we've known for a long time that uh, uh, agricultural and forestry is in the form of rice straw, rice husk, coconut shells, sugarcane trash, etc. can be used to make a wide variety of uh, products such as uh, solid fuels, um, uh, biochar-based fertilizers, um, liquid biofuels, etc. And this is this you've known for a very long time. However, the industry is not scaling, right? And we think it's not scaling uh, because the current crop of technologies that are available are very large scale, centralized, and uh, very capital intensive equipment that process very large volumes of these waste, which are very bulky, voluminous materials. And you know, they, it costs a lot to for them to transport for them to be transported from the farms or forests to these uh, to these sites over long distances over large quantities. Uh, so we think that's a cost barrier. And what we are working on at Takachar is to make these small scale low-cost portable equipment that can go directly to the waste rather than bringing the waste to the, to the technology. And what that enables is in-situ conversion and value addition, which lowers the logistics and processing costs subsequently down uh, the value stream by up to 75%. Uh, but also at the same time, does this value addition at the site of uh, farmers, where farmers stay or where these rural communities stay, thereby enabling them to earn an additional income uh, within their village itself. So that's, you know, on a very high level, uh, that's what we're trying to do. And if I go further higher up from here, uh, what we want to do as a company is to promote this entire idea of climate justice, where, uh, you know, we see that rural underserved communities are going to be most impacted by climate change and also air pollution. And... Uh, we see that they have this tremendous resource available with them, which is just, which is just being burnt up uh, and turned into smoke. And just because uh, technologies currently that are designed are, are not designed for them, are not meant for them, and are you know, designed for, say, large corporation or industrialist, that doesn't mean that they shouldn't be able to gain value out of that waste and, do, and, do, and benefit from that. And while at the same time participate in this entire uh, journey of fighting against climate change and air pollution, which is ultimately going to impact them strongly. So uh, that's why we started Takachar uh, in the first place. And I think as far as what the technology does, Simon, I think you covered it uh, fairly well. I'll just say that uh, we wouldn't want to be lost within these term terminologies of pyrolysis or torrefaction or, or something because different research bodies, agencies have different uh, I guess, uh, ways of using these terms. But I think what I can say is you maximize the production of char rather than the gaseous or the liquid components that come out of the process of this thermochemical treating process. And uh, we try to create various uh, and uh, value-added byproducts from that char and enable farmers to earn an ex additional extra income out of it. Awesome. I've seen pictures of both the product that you produce and also the uh, the units that you have, but I suspect that some of our listeners will will not have seen those. Can you just give a quick description of what the the, the machine looks like, and what does the what does biochar look like? Sure. So the machine is essentially a it is essentially a piece of hardware which is which does not occupy much area. It can be just latched behind tractors and taken directly to farms and forests. And you know, farmers can just directly process their agricultural waste, what they have at site, uh, dump it into the machine uh, through the hopper. Uh, and uh, they have to just ignite a portion of the biomass initially for the first five to 10 minutes. And uh, 
the process becomes hot enough after a certain period of time and you start generating char out of the process. And uh, it's a continuous process. So you keep feeding in the agricultural waste and you have char coming out at the other end, uh, which is then which can easily be packaged and stored. And so what the farmers really need to do is just feed in the biomass, uh, press a button uh, that takes care of all the controls in the machine. And uh, after that, uh, you know, just collect the output and store it and pack it for, for selling it later to an offtake market. And we don't really require any external source of energy for the thermal heating for the entire process of uh, producing the char. It's essentially, as I said, we ignite a certain portion of the biomass initially for about 10 to 15 minutes, and then you, know, you, can, you can run it for 24 hours a day without uh, any other additional external source of uh, heat input. And that makes it suitable to be deployed in remote rural areas. You know, we, just pa- uh, we power all of the equipment uh, in the machine through just batteries. Uh, so, you know, it's it's, a, it's an equipment that's designed to be operated in rugged, off-grid, uh, remote environments. And a great example of designing for the appropriate context, uh, in my opinion. Exactly. Uh, and, you know, we, um, I mean, we spent a lot of time understanding what it would take to operate and maintain such equipment in, in such places. And that's something that we're feeding back into the uh, functional requirements uh, of the product. All right. So Vidyut, you spoke about the process a little right now. You talked about how uh, the farmers need to perhaps collect this residue or this, this biomass and feed it at one end. But uh, what was your experience working with the farmers in the first place? How did you convince them that this is something that would bring value to them and, and in general have an environmental impact? Or was that something that you discussed at all in the first place? So can you talk a little bit more about the farmers that you have been dealing with? Yeah, so we've been working in uh, some different agricultural contexts. So we've been working, of course, in Kenya, where we're converting rice bases dues into this carbon-rich and carbon-negative fertilizer product. Uh, we are working in India in a couple of places, where again we are working with rice rice bases dues to convert it into this this fertilizer. Working with coconut shells uh, and working the activated carbon value chain and trying to see how we can eliminate the air pollution in that value chain. And even working in some developed country context, so we're working in the uh, Pacific West Coast, uh, in the U.S. and uh, Canada to see how we could use uh, how we could use uh, forest waste uh, uh, that gets burnt up, uh, burnt up in forest fires, uh, and uh, be processed in our equipment uh, instead as a waste management uh, method. So. Uh, each of these contexts, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's are very new. And I mean, our equipment is something that's good. It's probably being tried for the first time. Uh, so all of it has involved us setting up pilots, owning and operating the equipment and showcasing it uh, to whoever the end user is in these different contexts, what the value of using our equipment is and uh, what uh, what would they get, get to benefit, uh, right? Uh, and... Uh, Proving what uh, what the value proposition is essentially in very simple business terms. So uh, that's what it has involved, and this is mainly because agriculture is such a contextual topic that we cannot just simply scale one business model across every agriculture every agricultural context. One has to kind of custom tailor to say a, a rice based agricultural uh, based uh, value chain. Which, and which might be completely different for a coconut-based uh, agricultural value chain because the end user is completely different. So our business models do slightly uh, vary across these value chains. Uh, so it does involve us kind of doing this pilot with a couple of end users and then and scaling it within that value chain from there. Uh, so that's how we start. And even just going as an example, with the fertilizer uh, project, uh, we, what we do is we set up set up a unit ourselves. We collect some agricultural waste. We produce uh, some fertilizer. And then we say work with a group of uh, 10 to 15 farmers and apply this fertilizer on a small portion of their plot, uh, um, even covering for the risk uh, in doing so. And, uh, and, we, and we showcase it to them in front of them, what's the benefit in yield that you're getting. And the moment that they see that there's a benefit in yield, that effect spreads to that information spreads to other farmers and that's how we're able to scale from one farmer to the other. 
so it does involve that initial handholding, uh, but uh, uh, once we have done that, it's it's a matter of scaling across that value chain and just replicating. So have you been able to demonstrate those improved yields in just one growing season with the farmers? Um, so it, it's it's taken its time. Um, so initially, it, it, it there was a period of trial and experimentation when we were start starting new as to what worked and what what didn't work. Uh, we did begin to see some results uh, uh, in in our initial few trials itself, and over time we got to know better uh, uh, what's uh, what's working well, and we've been trying to replicate that over time. So. Yeah, I mean, we did get positive results in our first trial itself. And even with our project here in um, that we're doing here in India with the World Food Program uh, Innovation Accelerator and the World Food Program India office, where we're converting uh, rice straw uh, into this carbon negative fertilizer. I mean, we are doing this trial for the first time. The farmers, where we, where we have this test and control plot marked out and we are, we'll be assessing various parameters on for example, yields and, you know, just the plant growth, various other factors that you used to measure in plant growth. And just compare that and we hope to get uh, uh, positive results in uh, the first trial itself. And and this is based on a lot of R&D and experimentation that we've done over the past five or six years. Okay, great. And if I understand correctly, and there's actually a number of different types of customization that are needed uh, with each application. so. You customize for the for the value chain for the particular way that a a crop cycle operates. You customize for the biomass in the system technically, and then you also perhaps need to customize for the type of soil and the type of nutrients it, it needs. So it's the the projects you've done so far have actually, if I get it, um, been pretty sort of intensive in terms of working with the with the farmers and the, the local conditions. Are there any ways that you can see to to use more automation or uh, shortcuts? Sure, great question. So as you po- rightly pointed out, there are various uh, different uh, parameters here. One is the agricultural waste. One is producing the right quality of the carbon output required for the uh, end application, uh, right? And uh, yeah, there is there is... You know, all this is a matter of how we control the reaction uh, within the reactor. And uh, what we have at the moment is a system uh, or essentially a controller where we figured out, say, for example, if we've deployed a machine somewhere in northern India and the local application is a biochar-based uh, fertilizer application uh, for a uh, that requires a certain quality of biochar and the, the only available residue here is say rice straw, then there is, a, there is a certain way that it needs to be processed within the machine. And through our own R&D and trials, we, we have figured out what, what it takes to do that. And that's uh, sort of coded into the controller of the machine that completely automates the process of doing that. Uh, so the farmer doesn't, or the operator doesn't really need to uh, bother with, you know, okay, they, they need to operate the machine in a certain way to feed in a particular kind of crop residue for a particular kind of application. All they need to do is they need to just feed in the locally available residue that they have. And the controller takes care of the entire process uh, of doing that itself and produces the quality of char needed for that end application. And this is something that we hope to repeat for everything, for activated carbon, solid fuel, etc. And as long as we know the end requirements, uh, technically of how the char needs to be, and what is the locally available biomass? Okay. And what's the most unusual biomass that you've been asked to uh, to do research on, or to see if you can process? Um, well, it's uh, uh, a lot of times. I mean, people do reach out reach out to us with uh, queries regarding if our equipment can process, uh, say, municipal solid waste or even uh, things like seaweed. Uh, which uh, which it, it can, we'd be happy to look into it as long as it is it, it does not have the moisture content uh, uh, in it as it is, uh, because as is a thermochemical treatment and not really suitable to work with really high, really, really wet kind of biomass, more suitable to be worked with agriculture and forest waste. But we could work with those kind of waste if they are, if they are you know, pre-dried. Uh, either already by the supplier or through the waste heat uh, that is evolved from our equipment. 
All right, Vidyut. So now we are at that point of this discussion where we'd like to know a little bit more about you, uh, the person. So we'd like to know your origin story. Where did you grow up? What did you study? What what path did you take to eventually becoming the co-founder of Takachar? And importantly, where did you meet your co-founder? So I I grew up in Delhi in India and uh, I I did my schooling here and I did my undergraduation in. Um, uh mechanical engineering uh, also 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 here in india and i was deeply interested in uh, in sustainability and energy technology as such uh from a from a very social impact lens uh because just from you know just i think it's just to do with my bringing a lot of travel all over india and understanding various social contexts and i think my parents brought in a lot of sensitivity in me uh during those travels so we didn't do a lot of those typical kind of travel like how tourists do and i i think uh, i i was it wasn't clear to me in, in in when i was like just starting my undergraduate but what i what i wanted to do but i was pretty sure that i wanted to uh, be in the social impact space but at the same time i was quite interested in renewable energy technologies which kind of during as as i delved further and did my engineering it kind of put me on the path of energy access and uh, those kind of topics and i did internships um, in various organizations uh, in india that worked in this space and uh, and i think i knew that i wanted to uh, work in this space for a long period of time and uh, that led me to a masters in uh, sustainable energy technology at, at the technical university of delft in the netherlands uh where i specialize in biomass technology and cross cultural uh, entrepreneurship and uh, at that point in time I, i i was really interested in biomass after i think exploring all other uh, all other uh, energy technologies in the first year like solar wind um um hydrogen batteries uh, etc i was as quite interest, interested in biomass because i think it's one of those fields that that has a very multidimensional impact uh, you get to work with uh, communities directly on the ground you get to address a uh, host of environmental problems uh, ranging from air pollution to climate change to soil health uh, so it it kind of deeply interested me uh, there and also from a technical perspective it i was quite curious to know that there is a lot of potential for you know this biomass to be used but it's not happening so what does it mean technically uh uh and from a technology development perspective and i mean you know what what's what's the missing puzzle there so that's what led me to working on biomass and this was around 2013 2014 and um and I, and around around that time this entire air pollution crisis in india also started gaining a lot of media attention because um Uh, all of a sudden uh, you know i think just the quantum of crop residues that began to be burnt uh, in a concentrated of period of time particularly in particularly in and around my hometown delhi just uh, just uh, skyrocketed and that start air quality started to worsen because of that and that was grabbing a lot of media attention and uh, being a student in the biomass field at that point in time i was pretty curious to see you know i was pretty uh, curious to explore why that's happening and how my research work can be used to apply to that particular problem because it was something that was uh, you know the problem was i think uh, very close to home so i guess a direct connect there i mean i was pretty hooked at that point in time and i was pretty sure that i wanted to continue this uh, from there on and not leave it my co-founder um was doing his phd in at mit at, at the same point in time and his work was also pretty much india and kenya focused and uh, both of us met uh, both of us presented to a uh, organization that we were trying to partner with here in india at that one point in time for like subsequent pilots and uh, they were like okay you two people have presented us the same thing uh, the same kind of technologies over two different days why don't you two you two connect and that's how we connected and stayed in touch for a few years exchanging notes uh, as we did our own individual pilots and uh, kevin my co-founder finished his phd thesis and finally in 2018 we applied to a competition called smart 50 organized by the government of india with 17000 startups uh, participated from all over the world and we managed to win that competition and that's what uh, kind of gave us the confidence that there is something here and we managed to and we kind of 
I, I quit my job in that point in time and he finished his PhD and we started working full time together there on. Okay. I, I, I didn't know any of that about how you were working in different places and, and came together through a, um, you know, a chance meeting. That's really interesting. And it's obviously it's a sector that's not easy to establish yourself in, um, particularly in, in India, I guess. So looking back on those, those first few years, who are the key entities, individuals that, that helped you the most? What were the, was it, was there government support? Was it some uh, foundations? Where did you get your, uh, your lift off from? Right. I think initially, since a lot of work uh, came out from university, for me personally, it was a lot of support I got uh, from my university itself at U Delft. Uh, just the initial few funds, uh, even during a master's thesis. I mean, it was a very unconventional master thesis, you know, where uh, it, it, you're trying to, uh, I guess, uh, uh, spin out a startup uh, and, you know, uh, and, and trying to develop prototypes and raising funds, uh, you know, during a master thesis to build and develop your prototypes. Uh, so it was uh, it was my university that helped me a lot in getting uh, in you know supporting me with some of those resources. And I think just the culture of entrepreneurship there in the university really uh, really uh, gave me the confidence to go ahead with this. And even after graduating, I still got some funds. Uh, after that from the university to do a pilot again, you know, to test out uh, further designs and prototypes. Uh, apart from that, in the initial few years, I would definitely say friends and family uh, who contributed to, say, a, a crowdfunding campaign that we raised that, you know, gave us enough resources to at least carry this on part-time. And uh, I think after that, when we started working full-time, it, it, I would say definitely we, we, won a, we won a fellowship called Echoing Green. And they were the people who backed us for the first time uh, in with you know a decent sum of money uh, to for us to quit our, quit our jobs and uh, support ourselves and uh, uh, work on this full time. So I would definitely say these were the few people and organizations that were uh, our pillars of support. Excellent, Vidyut. Now, so in all these years, of course, the world has changed, and uh, I'd like to I'd like you to reflect on you know, maybe some of the ways uh, the world has changed for you and, and in general, the landscape. So firstly, uh, what, what are some perhaps mistakes that you made initially that you would avoid repeating now with the benefit of hindsight? And uh, relatedly, could you also talk about uh, or maybe reflect on your pivot uh, from making fuels to fertilizers? Uh, why didn't the initial pathway work out and how easy or difficult was it to make those changes? Right. So um, I think the world definitely has changed uh, over these uh, over these past few years, uh, five, six years. And I, I do see a lot, a lot of uh, uh, money uh, flowing into the climate tech space, particularly. And, uh, you know, uh, I mean, I just I was just looking up some numbers and, you know, there's been a 210 uh, percent growth year on year in investor funding in um, uh, climate tech companies and uh, VC investments is, I mean, in 2016, it was about $6.6 .6 billion in the space and this is now increased to $32 billion in, in 2021. So it's a space that, you know, is attracting a lot of, uh, lot of investment and, uh, and also a lot of world attention and media attention. So, you know, uh, for us, uh, this is, uh, uh, for someone innovating in the space, this is, this is a really good spot to, uh, spot to be in. Um, for some of the mistakes that we would avoid, uh, particularly when we started, uh, I would definitely say we should have worked backwards from the application uh, rather than the technology and work backwards to say develop the technology. So if, if uh, say, if an activated carbon company is 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 uh, wanting a certain kind of uh, raw material input and a certain quality, we kind of uh, kind of ensure we have partners and we have uh, uh, people who are interested in um, getting a certain quality of, uh, you know, this, this charcoal offtake for their requirements and, uh, and get that confidence, okay, that the market exists um, and create that offtake uh, market opportunity first and then work backwards to develop the technology, do pilots, and then uh, work on the sales of the product. 
we did start doing that uh, we were not late in doing that uh, we did start doing that soon enough but uh, i think just right at the university stage uh, right in the beginning i think doing involving those kind of um, uh, being just more uh, customer centric uh, right in the beginning would uh, would definitely save a lot of time and resources do you want to also talk about the question about the um, switching between product Right, right. So for us, I mean, all applications are important: fuels, fertilizers, activated carbon, and even in the future, various other carbon-based products that could be made uh, from uh, biomass uh, that are more advanced. But uh, you know, we we uh, as a startup uh, right now, we we want to focus on markets that are, that can get us uh, customer traction faster uh, and. Uh, and start working on uh, you know opportunities that uh, uh, that can help test and validate our equipment faster uh, and also uh, for, particularly in our case you know we want to avoid setting up the entire logistics chain of collecting agricultural waste and you know making it available for our machine etc so you know we want to focus on where our strengths are which is the hardware and the equipment uh, and the technology so ideally we'd want to start off in a value chain you know that's uh, already established and we want to kind of insert ourselves within that value chain and solve a pain point uh, so we think uh, uh, you know we think uh, the activated carbon value chain is something that's already quite mature with a uh, large offtake of carbon biomass based uh, uh, carbon products and uh, that's somewhere we where we think we can address a key environmental problem of air pollution but also at the same time uh, work with cottage industries uh, in rural areas to help uh, uh them earn additional income and support their livelihoods so that's that's a market that i wouldn't say the biggest market for us but uh, it's a starting point for us to start deploying our equipment and start processing it uh in the meantime uh you know while we are doing other pilots like with rice straws and baking these fertilizers and uh you know with even with solid fuels as an application that requires more um research and r and because you know no one's really done that right and uh, there there isn't a, already an existing uh, carbon utilization it's something that uh, we have to create uh, or work with someone who's willing to create it so as we are working on those uh, we do want to start scaling in, in in you know our beachhead or i guess lower hanging fruits if i can call it with say applications that already involved a carbon utilization got it i understand this the this is a scale up story much much better and as you say i mean the world has changed dramatically i think in around some of especially carbon removal technologies in the last 5 years this week we just released the iea our latest numbers on the uh, the clean energy venture capital trends so i'll put a link to the uh, the world energy investment report in the, in the show notes we saw a doubling of money flowing into this space in in 2021 um and have you taken on equity investors uh, along the journey or have you been able to um, to scale so far with with grants and and prize money so uh, we've been uh, we've been uh, uh, we've not taken equity investments uh, till now and uh, uh, we've been uh, we've been supported by uh, winning business plan competitions uh, government funding both in india and the us and also willing uh, large large competitions like the earthshot prize and uh, uh, elon musk x prize for carbon removal uh, which have uh, provided us substantial funds for at least uh, do a proof of concept and uh, uh, and uh, and validating our technology and product uh, which i think is a strong basis uh, for us to start scaling for their from there and probably a right time to also start thinking about uh, taking in investment in uh, in uh, different forms and do you see and i don't know how close this is to being a reality but do you see the ability to to aggregate or sell offsets as being a, a major future revenue stream i mean the emergence of this as a thriving area of interest must have really changed the picture for you guys right so over the past uh, year and a half or so we've been thinking deeply about uh, about uh, carbon removal and uh, uh, and you know the just the carbon offsets and uh, 
and carbon credits. And the way we've been thinking about this is, is how uh, of how we how we can use this to scale uh, the impact on these farmers. Uh, because uh, essentially these farmers are utilizing their agricultural waste using our equipment to convert that into this carbon negative fertilizer. And when they apply it to the soil, they are sequestering this carbon in the soil. So we want to see how uh, these, these farmers in different parts of the world uh, can be connected directly to these carbon markets for sequestering as well as offsetting carbon emissions and earn an extra income out of it. Uh, that's something that we're working on pretty deeply, and it's something that we want to that we want to um, operationalize uh, very soon. And since we now have a strong farmer base of uh, uh, six thousand farmers already, it's something that uh, that's implementable for us now as we start here and, and and we scale as well. However, I do want to say that we are not relying purely on carbon credits uh, as a revenue source to support us. I mean, we want our uh, biochar project to be self-sustaining in itself and uh, and uh, profit generating in itself. That the fertilizer is a strong enough product uh, uh, that generates profits for us and is sufficient as a business without, uh, you know, the without the support of the voluntary carbon market uh, in itself. And and that makes it very look lucrative right our, I mean, our tech, our, that makes our technology and process very lucrative as a carbon removal tool because uh, the cost for carbon removal is essentially negative then uh, as compared to uh, uh, say many other options that uh, exist in the market at the moment and and rapidly scalable with the small scale low cost nature of our hardware as well to do that and that's what we hope to leverage in this uh, uh, in this, uh, in the carbon removal space, uh, particularly with the carbon negative fertilizer that we're working with in uh, currently in India and Kenya at the moment, and uh, want with a vision to scale in uh, different parts of the world. Well, it certainly makes it sound like you'll be a, a potentially a very competitive solution in in that space. Uh, at a, you know, coming in at a, a price that others will, will struggle to match. And I've got so many other questions about proving the durability of the, the sequestration, all of these things. I think it's a conversation uh, probably for another time. We'll, we'll need to get back in touch and, and hear how you got on in the next couple of years. So with you, what uh, do you think the government can do to basically encourage innovation in this space further and also in general help the uptake of processed biomass and to end stubble burning? This is, uh, of course, a very uh, I guess, critical question that keeps coming back to people who especially work on the air pollution question that, you know, when is that, when is it that we can actually address this problem in a meaningful way? So uh, what can we do to rapidly scale this up? Right. So, I mean, I would say there are no shortcuts to this. I mean, this, uh, while there can be short term solutions that can be taken up uh, to address the problem uh, of uh, stubble burning, I think these are deep, deep systemic issues. Uh, that require, uh, of course, a political will, but also at the same time, if you want to spur innovations, you need to invest in R and D. So uh, that uh, that investment and that time and effort in innovations in R and D has to go in in any kind of crop uh, residue in handling innovation that you need to do, either in situ handling of those crop residues or ex situ processing of those uh, crop residues. So I think that's number one. And number two, uh, I think from a policy perspective, I think uh, definitely coming up with policies where, you know, uh, we think a certain kind of a product can be replaced by crop residue in, in the value chain. If a crop residue can participate in the value chain in, in making of a certain kind of product, that should be encouraged and uh, and that should be supported by the government and because i think the offtake and the end end utilization is what is the bottleneck here right if if that is addressed and sorted out uh, people will get confidence okay okay if i invest my time and effort in innovating something there is an end market for me to uh, uh, participate in right uh, so uh, for example packaging material okay probably you can make packaging material from crop residue waste 
so come up with policies that uh, enforce taking out plastic from that value chain and come using crop based based uh, bio based raw materials to make that and that creates a market pull directly there and you know has a uh, effect further upstream in the value chain so those are those are two areas that definitely say uh, uh, the government has a strong role to play uh, excellent with you now let's uh, get your crystal ball out uh, because uh, this question now has two parts with a look to what's going to happen over the next decade so firstly how do you see the sector evolving to 2030 and relatedly do you think agricultural residue burning can end within this decade i know that you said we don't have any you know short term solutions but is a decade a reasonable timeline i surely think uh, within a decade uh, this problem is uh, is uh, solvable uh, to a large extent provided uh, everyone everyone puts their head together in this uh, because this does it's not purely a technology fix uh, or a problem that can be solved by uh, by one company or one individual it has to be there needs to be effort from the government's end uh, to create the right policies uh, to understand the systemic issues and create right policies and laws uh, uh, to prevent this uh, you need so many more innovators to come up uh, with different solutions and there's i think space for so many innovators to work in work here there's just so much of agriculture based available uh, to do this uh and uh, yeah and also for large corporations right uh, i think uh, it's something uh, there are various partnerships that can be formed between various innovators and these large corporations who can participate uh, uh work together and uh, you know uh, solve this problem for example if if a certain if there's a water purifier company that makes water purifiers they know they have activated carbon in the value chain and uh, we know that the process of producing charcoal for activated carbon in many parts of the developing world is highly polluting. Uh, so why not put back pressure on your value chain and scout for cleaner technologies and push for them and enforce your suppliers to utilize those technologies to provide you the raw material? Uh, because you're the one who's driving the, uh, you're driving the market and you have the power to do that. So why not do that? So I think when everyone participates together, I think this will this this problem will end. And by 2030, I do think in the biomass space, uh, a lot of focus will slowly and gradually shift uh, more towards creating higher value bioproducts. Uh, the current narrative is more towards how we utilize utilize these agricultural waste so that air pollution doesn't happen uh, or other harmful environmental effects uh, don't happen. I think over time, uh, gradually, as as, as this as the sector becomes more and more mature, I think a lot of research that has started already right now will also begin to bear fruit and how we can make various uh, higher order or higher value carbon-based products or even other kinds of products from these agricultural wastes, uh, uh, which uh, which which is I think this uh, sector would would be heading in for example if how 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 can we make graphite from say carbon based material uh, that is coming from agricultural waste or how can we make uh, battery electrodes uh, so those are some of the questions uh, on which a uh, lot of research is happening right now and uh, will bear fruit uh, in that period of time for sure thanks because some of those longer term potential applications in clean energy value chains especially um, provide us with a great place to to bring the conversation to a close with this sort of sense of enthusiasm and optimism about where we might get to in the future. So, Vidyut, thanks so much for, for sharing your wisdom and for inspiring the listeners to Innovation Frontlines. None of our guests get away, I'm afraid, without answering uh, our set of quickfire questions. So we're going to subject that to you now. Uh, and if you could keep your answers to you know, nice, crisp, uh, short one-line answers, uh, I'm going to start with a question that is, will India get to net zero emissions before or after 2070? I think 2070 is a really long time. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's, uh, I think it's, it's a very, very far away. So I think irrespective of the target set uh, by the government, we'll probably achieve it uh, before that because the time period is so long. <laughs> Fair enough. And uh, Vidyut, who will be your biggest competitor in, say, 2030? This could either be in terms of a technology or perhaps an actual company. 
Um, I think uh, for us, uh, I think, uh, I mean, we we were aware of uh, various people working in the space and, uh, you know, uh, the more the better. Um, and for us, I mean, we focus on the user and the customer as much as possible, keeping in mind the competition. Uh, but our focus is always on the, on the user and the customer and customer research and the pain points. Uh, so I wouldn't bother too much about the uh, about the competition as long as uh, we have our business basics right and the environmental problem is being solved. Nice attitude. So if it weren't for energy, what would you be working on? Uh, if it weren't for energy, um, I would be surely working on some aspect of climate justice uh, uh, somewhere. Uh, not sure what, uh, but that's something that's uh, that I've uh, studied and always wanted to work in and been been trained for. Fair enough. And uh, what new type of product do you hope that your company will be marketing, say, a decade from now? What perhaps a technological innovation or perhaps an entirely new product category? So this is in a ten year time, right? Um, probably in ten years, um, you know, we would have uh, we would be working on and innovating on. Uh, equipment that makes the production of higher value carbon-based products really simple and easy. Great. And if you could collaborate with one company in India or anywhere in the world today to scale up your operations, which company would that be? At the moment, I would say like in the really, really short term, uh, six to eight months, I'll just focus in that since our immediate beachhead market is in the activated carbon value chain. Uh, we'd be open to collaborating with uh, anyone in the space uh, to see how we can participate in your value chain and clean up the air pollution there. So thank you very much, Vidyut, for sharing your experiences with us. Uh, we wish you the very best in success in your initiatives to accelerate the energy transition and move the carbon capture space along. So uh, thanks very much. Thank you so much, Siddharth and Simon, for having me. You have been listening to a conversation with Vijit Mohan, co-founder and CEO of Takachar. Subscribe to Innovation Frontlines and the IEA's Everything Energy podcast and look out for the next episode in this series of how India's clean energy entrepreneurs are identifying untapped potential for technology to drive energy transitions globally and teaching us about new policy challenges to be overcome. You've been listening to Innovation Frontlines, a podcast by the International Energy Agency on the innovators and innovations that can take India, and indeed the world, to a net zero emissions future. Our next episodes will feature in-depth conversations with India's most promising innovators working on this global challenge.